Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session 10 of Sauron Defeated, as we continue to work our way slowly through the Notion Club papers. Um, of course, uh, as you know, we're way behind the schedule now. This is, I don't regret this. Uh, basically, this came about because I, when I scheduled this book i basically scheduled it at the about the pace that we've been following and been able to keep to pretty well over the last several volumes as we've been doing the history of middle earth and um uh we um uh yeah <laughs> notion club papers we are not able to go through at the same rate uh as i've been trying to go through and make sure that i'm getting my head around everything it's fairly it's really fascinating stuff but pretty dense you have to admit so um uh <laughs> anyway <laughs> so um anyway anyhow so we're making progress uh and tonight of course we're hoping to get um uh hoping to get all the way up to uh the uh peculiar activities of uh Ari Laudum. Uh, and his story as we begin to take the rather peculiar discussions of Raymer and his dream vision space and time travel mechanism uh, up through to uh, uh, Ari Laudum and his philological uh, discoveries uh, and uh, his own sort of peculiar experience of Numenor as well. So um, that's the goal here today. Uh, before we get going, though, yes, several people are asking about the new book. So, yes, I shall uh, I shall let you know. Uh, uh, so, let me quickly do my announcements before I forget. Uh, quick announcements. Uh, we have our two moots coming up, New England moot and Middle moot. New England moot in Amherst, Massachusetts on September, Sunday, I should mention, September 29th, and then Middle moot in Waterloo, Iowa, on Saturday, October 12th. Uh, those are both coming up. The call for papers for both of them closes this weekend. So if you want to participate, I hope you do. Uh, uh, feel free to submit an idea uh, there, and uh, and we'll see. Maybe you can participate at our moot. Hope to see you there. In any case, registration for both is opened. I've been uh, delightedly seeing registrations come in. Uh, Moot registrations are especially fun to watch. I always enjoy watching registrations come in, but I'm especially uh, always interested in moot registrations because, of course, it, it means I get to kind of build my mental list of folks I'm going to get to see. I love to see, you know, the names of people I've I've gotten to hang out with before and I'm going to get to see again. And, of course, especially also new folks that I haven't gotten to meet in person yet. So um, always really fun. I'm looking forward to both of those events and I hope that you can join me. So, okay, the second... Oh, yeah. The second one, Watership Down. So, of course, many of you have been uh, Mythgard Academy viewers for a long time and will remember our Watership Down class, which we did a long time ago now, actually. That was like, goodness, that was like seven years ago or some ridiculous sort of thing. Not quite that long ago, but pretty close uh, that we did our Watership Down class. Um, so, uh, we, uh, we're, we're doing... Uh, you, most many of you, of course, may remember that uh, Netflix released their new four-part adaptation, uh, miniseries adaptation of Watership Down um, uh, back at uh, Christmas time last year. Uh, and I've been looking forward to uh, discussing that. So we are finally going 
to uh, uh, we're finally going to discuss it. That's not the announcement of our next book, of course. We've already done Watership Down, so we can't do that again. But the Mythgard Movie Club is doing our session on the Netflix adaptation of Watership Down, the 2018 uh, adaptation. Um, that's going to happen next Thursday. So Thursday, September 5th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be discussing the Netflix Watership Down, uh, and I hope you can join us for that. It's, uh, uh, we, we, you know, it'll be a nice... Uh, Nice little many years later follow up to the original uh, Watership Down uh, discussion. So, um, okay. Now, the announcement. This was a tough vote. The finalists this uh, time around was what a wonderful pool of finalists. Uh, so, the finalists were Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, uh, Dante's Inferno. Uh, the Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin and American Gods by Neil Gaiman, several of which uh, have been finalists before. And anyway, obviously, no losers on that list. The winner and the next book we shall go on to discuss when we when and if we get to the end of Sauron Defeated is... Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. We are coming back to Ursula Le Guin for a second time. I think that this is, I think, our first um, uh, our first repeat non-Tolkien author. Um, yeah, I think that's true, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but that's true. Yeah, of course, we did The Dispossessed a while back, and now we're doing Wizard of Earthsea. So, yeah, it was very, very close. Um, uh, uh, there was a, yeah... It was a, a very close vote. Uh, I think Dante came in second. Uh, don't tell him. He wouldn't take that too well. But um, uh, anyway. <laughs> Good. Excellent. So yeah, so I'm looking forward to discussing Le Guin again. Our discussion of the dispossessed was uh, uh, was was uh, really a revelation to me. Uh, the dispossessed, as you'll probably remember, was one of the two books that we've discussed uh, in uh, this series, uh, the Mythgard Academy series that I had never read before won the election. Um, uh, so that was a, that was that was really fun for me to discover that book. The other one, of course, being Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, uh, but, so, not true this time. I have indeed read Wizard of Earthsea, but I'm looking forward to discussing it. I haven't discussed that book since I first did uh, Modern Fantasy 1 way back uh, ever so long ago. So, um, anyway, so this is going to be, this is going to be really cool. Like I said, there was no possibility of a bad outcome, uh, from this election. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway, but that's the, that's the news. So Ursula Le Guin next time, Wizard of Earthsea coming up in a little while. <laughs> so maybe October, uh, if things, uh, proceed, uh, a pace here. On the subject of which, let us carry on with proceeding. So we were still in Raymer's discussion of his dream experiences. Uh, so I want to return to that. Um, remember he had just talked about, um, he had talked about encountering different persons, right? Having different kinds of encounters, uh, that blessedness, Right, that would kind of soak through, uh, and that frightening that would kind of come in, um, uh, and uh, uh, neither of uh, you know. So we we talked about that stuff a little bit last time. Okay, so Jeremy says to Raymer, "You speak as if you knew." Said Jeremy, "How do you know all this?" 
No, I don't claim to know anything about such things, and I'm not laying down the law, but I feel it. I have been visited or spoken to, Raymer said gravely. Then, I think, the meaning was direct, immediate, and the imperfect translation perceptibly later, but it was audible. In many accounts of other such events, I seem to recognize experiences similar, even when far greater. You make it all sound like hallucination, said Frankly. But of course, said Raymer, they work in a similar way. If you are thinking of diseased conditions, then you may believe that the cause is nothing external, and all the same, and all, and all the same something, even if it is only some department of the body, must be affecting the mind and making it translate outwards. So here he's, dis he's talking about how hallucination works, right? If you believe in possession or the attack of evil spirits, then there is no difference in process, only the difference between malice and goodwill, lying and truth. There is disease and lying in the world, and not only among men. Okay, let's try to unpack this a little bit. Um, so, uh, Raymer has, again, he's been talking about the sort of good spirits and bad spirits and things, and, and you know, Jeremy's like, how do you know all this? Like, what, you know, where, where, what is your authority for, for all this stuff? And um, Raymer, on the one hand, is... Um, uh, uh, Raymer is on the one hand disclaiming absolute authority, right? He's saying, I'm not laying down the law. I don't claim to know anything, right? So he, 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 he doesn't have knowledge. What he has is experience, right? I feel it. I have been visited or spoken to. So how does he know that there are other minds out there that he's come in contact with? Because he's been visited or spoken. He knows because he's experienced it. He says. Now, brief recollection from last week, which feels better than trying to recollect from three weeks ago, like we were doing last time. Um, he was talking about language. And you remember that Raymer was opining that language as we know it, that is, the meaning, you know, just as incarnate persons, right, persons who are souls and bodies joined together. Uh, just as souls and bodies are joined together in an incarnate person, so words and meaning are joined together in language. So in a sense, that the, the meaning of the mind right, is sort of the spiritual, soul-like element there. And the actual sounds, right, the pattern of sounds, which symbolically represent right, and, 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 and you know, sort of point to and convey that spiritual thing, um, are like the body. Right. And so and so again, he was opining that only incarnate creatures speak with language, language as that kind as in itself, that kind of incarnate thing languages as the incarnation of meaning in words, in physical sounds. Right. Or visible symbols, one or the other. Right. In either case, it's an incarnational thing. And those who are not themselves incarnate, those who are not themselves body and mind joined together don't get language. They don't use language. Language isn't a thing with them. Those who are only spiritual and don't have bodies themselves communicate directly mind to mind. So when they communicate with us, Raymer was saying, there's an act of translation here. Our minds receive what they're saying and we will, our, our own minds will kind of translate it into language for our own self. Like we will incarnate it ourselves as we receive it, 
right? Or they can choose uh, to sort of affect our minds in such a way that we hear it, right? Or they could like fake sounds and stuff, but it's not native to them. It's not what they do. That's what I, I believe they were just talking about. And Jeremy's like, how, how, do you, how do you know all this? And again, he says, by experience, right? He has been visited. He's been spoken to. Then I think the meaning was direct, immediate. So they were communicating mind to mind. And the imperfect translation, that is the rendering of that thing that he was made to understand, that his mind comprehended immediately, um, that was rendered into language, translated into corporeal language, as it were, later. But it was audible, he says. In many accounts of other such events, I seem to recognize experiences similar even when far greater. What does he mean? He means, uh, well, I think one of the things that he means when he says in many, like, what accounts of other such events could he be referring to? Um, Written accounts of events where a mortal person heard the, like, was communicated with by a spirit that did not have a body um, that might possibly be... um, far greater than his experience, right? I'm thinking he's probably thinking here of something like Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Um, Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop with Jesus at the Transfiguration, right? Um, all that kind of thing, right? Um, when Other accounts of angelic beings or of God himself speaking in what is recorded as if it were a voice that could be heard, right? Um, uh, And yes, Brian, also in Paralandra, right? um, Those of you who know Lewis's Space Trilogy well uh, may remember that there are a couple of scenes when, you know, a character is hearing one of the Eldil, uh, one of the Eldila speak. Um, An Eldil, I should say Eldil is the singular. Um, one of the Eldila uh, speaks, so they're 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 hearing the sound of a voice, right? But they're aware of the fact that they're not exactly hearing a voice. It's not coming from a throat, right? It's not exactly a voice in the normal sense of being a voice, right? Um, um, yes, Karina. Yes, the guy in the Bible kept wake, who God kept waking up, and he thought it was his boss. Yes, little Samuel. That's it. Exactly. All of those kinds of so biblical accounts of hearing God speak, also some fictional accounts of things like uh, uh, you know ransom or the Lewis narrator figure in in the beginning of Paralandra, uh, hearing the Eldila speak. Yes, yes, that kind of thing. So he says when he reads accounts of such things like that, I seem to recognize experiences similar. So he's like, yeah, okay, I I think that like Moses was having a similar kind of experience, like something in the way that it's described there in Exodus, right? Leads Raymer to believe, and I'm just throwing, I'm not saying he's necessarily thinking of that passage in particular, but it's an example of the kind of thing I think he's talking about. Um, something in that description rings true to Raymer. Like, yeah, that, I think the same thing that happened to me was happening to him. I mean, bigger deal, right? You know, God speaking to Moses, bigger deal than the communication that I received and what happened to me. But nevertheless, I think it's the same pattern here. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, and then frankly says, you make it all sound like hallucination. So like, it's like, so you're hallucinating this or how? And I think one of the implications of Franklin's question is like, how do you know you weren't hallucinating? Right. 
Raymer, however, embraces the connection to hallucination. He's like, yeah, yeah. So when the spirit communes with my mind directly and then I hear a voice, which is not really there, right? So I, I'm not actually, my ears are not in fact receiving any data from the corporeal world at all, right? No sound waves are hitting my eardrums at all. And yet I'm hearing an audible voice, right? Because my brain is in, is incarnating this message, right? It is translating this and it's translating it in terms of like an audio, an, it, an audible voice, right? An audible uh, translation of uh, this, the sense of this thing that I've heard, right? Okay. So frankly, like, what's the difference between that and a hallucination, right? Ramers says, not much difference, actually. They're very similar. They work in a similar way. Um, if you are thinking of diseased conditions, so somebody who's hallucinating, right? Someone who's like having a fever or whatever else and having a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a whacked out fever dream or something, then you may believe that the cause is nothing external. So somebody who sees something or hears something that isn't there when they're sick, right, someone who's hallucinating, right, the cause of what they're seeing and hearing is not outside themselves. It's internal to them, okay? And all the same, something, even if it's only some department of the body, must be affecting the mind and making it translate outwards. So, okay, when they're seeing and hearing things, someone who is hallucinating, right, someone who is in some kind of diseased state and as a consequence of that diseased state hallucinating... They are not receiving something from outside themselves, but they're receiving something from somewhere, right? There's a reason, like, a hallucination isn't nothing, right? It, it's called a hallucination because it's disconnected to the, from the actual outside world. They're hearing a voice, and there is no voice, in fact, out there, right? So why are they hearing a voice, right? The thing that they're hearing is, in a sense, real, right? It's real because they're actually hearing it. It's not real because it's not actually out there right? It's coming from inside. It's not coming from outside. But, so where is it coming from? Where in, somewhere inside it's, is where it's coming from, right? Some department, right? Some department of the body. Something must be affecting the mind and making it translate outwards. Something is feeding input into the mind, uh, which is leading it to believe that it has perceived something. You know, it's, it's, it's doing translation, right? So... Uh, and again, that's that's called disease. That's called hallucination when that is merely like a misfiring of the internal system of the person. But he says the process is very similar. The difference is so there are like three different scenarios that are very similar to each other that he's describing. Right. One is when you when you your eardrum actually is hearing a voice that's outside. Right. So sound waves are actually hitting your eardrum and you hear a voice. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is hallucination, where your mind tells you that sound waves have hit your eardrum, tells you that you're hearing something, right? But it is there are actually no sound waves, right? In fact, there's no stimulus coming to you from outside at all. It's just some part of your internal, some department of your body, right? Something within your diseased mind or body, which is feeding something into your mind and it's interpreting it falsely as something outside, right? But that's similar to the third scenario, which is when there is an external stimulus, but it's not actually a sound, right? It is a mental communication, a direct communication to your mind from another mind, and your mind translates that as a sound, just as it's taking whatever impulse, 
right? Whatever internally derived stimulus leads to a hallucination, it's instead taking this external thing, which is also not a sound, right? No, no, uh, no airwaves hitting your eardrums. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's, but it's still translating it, right? Um, yeah, Nancy, I do think he is suggesting that the mind can sometimes feed into itself, that a, like one department of the mind feeding into another department of the mind. Yes. Um, exactly. So, um, one of the things, by the way, that this makes me think of, this makes me remember, remember on fairy stories again, and I don't want to go in, I don't want to go into too much depth here, but, um, let me just kind of point to this and then you guys can you know if you're interested pursue it a little further and think about it more but it makes me wonder is was Tolkien thinking of something like this when he talked about morbid delusion in unfairy stories right he's talking about fantasy right he's talking about subcreation and the making of 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 new worlds and how people mistake that right people think it's dangerous people think it's not good for you Right. And he says people are mistaking this for morbid delusion. And I'm wondering if there's a if this um, this passage might perhaps serve, as we've seen more than once already now uh, in the Notion Club papers, if this passage from the Notion Club papers might help to serve as a bit of a gloss on that passage and on fairy stories. Um, Is he suggesting a similar parallel between. Um morbid delusion on the one hand, right? Uh, between morbid delusion, so fantasy and morbid delusion, uh, morbid delusion, and, um, you know, this, like, translation of spiritual communication and hallucination, right? Well, sorry, I flipped them. But anyway, th- so morbid delusion and hallucination are the two parallels here. That the point is that not, not that he's saying, like, no, 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 it's not delusion at all. But rather, delusion actually is kind of similar to it, in fact, right? In fact, you could even say, as he says of hallucination here, the the mechanism is very similar. The only problem is there's like one element of it which is diseased, and so therefore hallucination is, is not valuable, right? Just as morbid delusion is dangerous. But again, it's, it's not to say that delusion is fundamentally different. Um, just as when Jeremy, I think in one way, gently, impl- or frankly, rather, uh, uh, gently implies, are you sure you weren't hallucinating, right? Um, Raymer doesn't get offended and be like, oh no, the hallucination is totally different. He's like, yeah, actually, hallucination is almost exactly like this, right? Different in a one really important way, but it's almost exactly like this. And I wonder if Tolkien might say a similar thing concerning that passage in, in on fairy stories. It's not exactly the same, but like, again, delusion, it's not that delusion isn't totally different from secondary belief, right? It's similar. It, you might, you might say with Raymer, they work in a similar way, right? Anyway, as I said, I don't want to go too far into that, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Anyway, so then he's then he goes on. If you believe in possession or the attack of evil spirits, then there is no difference in process, only the difference between malice and goodwill, lying and truth. There is disease and lying in the world and not only among men. So 
um, it is possible for something external to something external that is not intrinsically a part of that person, in this case, an evil spirit, right? So if you believe that an evil spirit can attack the mind of a person, right, if you believe in possession or anything like that, um, then there's no difference in process, right? There you have a spiritual being communicating directly with the mind of that, putting input, right, providing input to that mind, which is received by that mind uh, as delusions, right, as hallucinations, uh, or at least what appear to be delusions and hallucinations to everybody else, because they don't see it, because they're not receiving that communication, right? So he says, yeah, process, exactly the same, right? What's the difference between that, the difference between attack of evil spirits and the kind of communication that he was saying he's experienced at the top of the slide there? is the difference between malice and goodwill, the difference between lying and truth. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We go back now to Malachandra and out of the silent planet. Um, again, I, you know, we talked about how sort of the, the, um, conceit of Out of the Silent Planet, how you have a human philologist who is transported to the moon and who meets Martians and learns their language. That's There's more to the story than that, but that's one brief synopsis, right, of the story of Out of the Silent Planet. Um, and so it's particularly interesting to me to hear Tolkien, the philologist, and as I've said, Ransom is not exactly, uh, I mean, to say that he is Tolkien, of course, is, uh, is, is, is not true, but I would say he is not wholly dissimilar from Tolkien. Let me, so let me put it that way. Um, so here's the real Tolkien, the real philologist talking about the situation described in Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, and you'll remember that earlier on, he had already said, he, Raymer had already said, I don't believe in old solar. Right. There is no original language, which is the root of all languages. There, there is no, you know, that, that that kind of philologist's fantasy, right, of finding the primordial language which lies behind all language. He says, nah, that doesn't real. that's not real. That doesn't really exist. So anyway, here he goes on to explain. I think there might be an old human or primitive Adamic certainly was one, uh, though it's not so certain that all our languages derive from it in unbroken continuity. So does he believe there might have been like one original mother language on Earth? Yeah, sure, that's possible, right? Though that doesn't necessarily mean that every single language derives from it in unbroken con uh, uh, continuity. The only undoubted common inheritance is the aptitude for making words, the compelling need to make them. But the old human that is, this theoretical original human language, could not possibly be the same as the prime language of other differently constituted rational animals, such as Lewis's Hrasa. Uh, that is, the, the kind of, now, the kind of uh, creature that Ransom first meets uh, on Malacandra. Uh, right. Because those two embodiments, men and Hrasa, are quite different, and the physical basis which conditions the symbol forms would be aborigine different, the mind-body blends would have quite different exp expressive flavors. The expression might not take vocal or even audible form at all. Without symbols, you have no language, and language begins only with incarnation and not before it. But of course, if you're going to confuse language with forms of thought, then you can perhaps talk about old solar. 
but why not old universal in that case? Okay. So he cannot believe that there could be a fundamental language that underlies the language of, of fundamentally different incarnate races on different planets. Like the idea of this, of this old, of the old solar language of this one, you know, sort of ultimate like galactic language, right? Which underlies all languages on all planets. He's like, that's not possible. Cause remember, Remember Raymer's earlier dictum, right? That language is an incarnate thing. It is the result of incarnation, right? It doesn't come before incarnation. So there cannot be a language as language which predates creatures. Now, right? Creatures that uh, uh, Lewis word now, which is a Hrasa word actually, um, for an incarnate rational creature, right? Body and um, body and spirit. You can't. There was no language before there, because language itself is an incarnate thing. It is a consequence of incarnation. It cannot possibly come before. And so when you have one species of now who's incarnate on earth, humans, right? And you have another species of now, uh, three, in fact, that are incarnate on Mars, on Malacandra, then you, like, there's no way that their languages would have like a common root because that implies there was a language which predates any of those incarnations and that's not possible. But what's more, he says, it wouldn't happen anyway. I mean, even if like, um, because the way that they would choose to, you know, so the incarnation of thought in language by an incarnate race, right. Um, is necessarily shaped and informed by the particular mind-body blends of that race, right? There is no way that the Hrasa would form a language which was like the language of men. They are too different from each other. I don't see this as an allusion to the Tower of Babel, Stephen. Um, this, is, this, is, this, this is much more fundamental than that. Um, yeah, this is much more fundamental than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly. Nancy, you're right. Nancy says he starts out talking about physical differences and you think maybe it's about how different kinds of beings have the physical capability to make different sounds. Yes. It does sound like that's where he's going, right? The Hrasa with very different throats and mouths, right? Than men would totally make different phonemes than men. I mean, it would be very, very different and, and, and probably very difficult for either one of them to make the same sounds as the other, or at least all of the same sounds as the other, right? Yes, it sounds like he's starting there, but Nancy, you were absolutely right to say that that's not, in fact, what he's saying. He, he, what he's saying is something much kind of broader than that. As Nancy goes on, um, instead, it seems to be about perception and experience. Absolutely. Yes. Um, the particular mind-body blend, like they have different minds and they have different bodies, and therefore the whole way that they think, the whole way in which they would incarnate their thought in language. Um, so it's not just the kind of, it's not about the kinds of sounds they would make. It's about the kinds of languages that they would make. It's about the particular expressive flavors of languages that they would use. Now, I don't feel that I can really understand this myself. I mean, I can go along with him, 
I mean, I can nod right while he talks about this, but I do not have Tolkien's understanding of languages. I can kind of try to convince myself that I understand what he means by the different expressive flavors of different languages, but I know that I'm faking it. I know that I don't have any really intuitive understanding of what he's talking about, but I can understand that this would make sense to Tolkien, right? With the kind of ear, with the kind of palate, if you will, for language and languages, different languages that he had, um, for him to be able to, uh, to, to, to sort of conceive of these different um, flavors of language, right? They would just, because they think differently, because their minds and bodies both work differently and combine differently, um, it's going to be different. Um, Brian, the, the fact that elves and humans have different kinds of languages is... I think there in Tolkien's imagined world and imagined languages, we see him trying to get at something closer to this than we certainly see in the world around us, right? I mean, um, the extent to which like, there are foreign languages and then there are foreign languages, <laughs> right? Um, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, there are language. You know, People whose, people whose languages are very, very different from English, right? But the gap there, you know, the widest linguistic gap that you can imagine between two Earth languages, right, is like nothing compared to the difference between this. And um, this is... Um, uh, makes me, of course, think of Klingon. Um, uh, when uh, Mark Ockren, uh, the, the uh, inventor of Klingon, uh, came to Mythmoot, uh, year before last and taught us some Klingon uh, and talked about the whole sort of invention process and how that worked in relationship with the uh, the filming of the movies, especially Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Um, you know, one of the things that he was revealing about it is that like the the, inf- the, the, the primary principle that informed his decisions uh, in how to do uh, Klingon, both f- from the, the 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 sounds that it primarily uses to the syntax of of Klingon and everything else, uh, on every single occasion, he just made whatever choice is least common. Uh, or like if, if if there is if there is an option that is unknown in any uh, in any human language, he chose that one. Or if not, he chose the one that was least common of any of the rest of them. He tried to make it uh, down to its very roots, as alien as possible, right? And that seems to me exactly the right approach to take. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, now, Christopher, you're probably right. Uh, Christopher says, given that men and elves can interbreed, the physical differences that appear to underlie this conception of language would be much smaller than beti- between now of different worlds. Yes, yes, probably. Though, again, I do think that there is something in Tolkien's um, when he is making the Elvish languages, I, I, I do be- suspect and believe that one of the things that he is kind of going for in the sound of, I would say, especially Quenya um, is a kind of otherness, right? This sense of coming into contact with a language that is formed by minds which are in some way more fundamentally alien to human minds than 
any other human language that we meet, right? And 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 uh, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why he was drawn to Finnish, because Finnish is different from you know the 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 gap between Finnish and you know other Western you know other languages, other European languages, um, is a much wider gap, right? It's a much wider gulf uh, than uh, um, than any other. Uh, uh, one and so I wonder if that's one of the things which kind of uh, drew him to Quenya as a model in some ways. I know there are other reasons too, but um, anyway, okay, uh, let's carry on. There will be much more about language before we're done. Okay, Put many places that Raymer has traveled, many things that he has seen, many stories he has watched unfold. Many of them have nothing to do with people. Right? It's true that I've not seen the solar planets often, that is, those planets in our solar system, nor explored them thoroughly. That's hardly necessary in most cases if you're looking for any conceivable organic life resembling what we know. But what I have seen convinces me that, that the whole system, save Earth, is altogether barren in our sense. Mars is a horrible network of deserts and chasms. Venus a boiling whirl of wind and steam above a storm-wracked, twilight-smoking black sea, rising like Everest, raging in the dusk over dim, drowned mountains and sucking back with a roar of cataracts like the end of Atlantis. Then go there. It's mag- it is magnificent, but it isn't peace. To me, indeed, very refreshing. Though that's too small a word. I can't describe the invigoration, the acceleration of intellectual interest in getting away from all this tangle of Ant Hill history. I am not a misanthrope. To me, it's a more inspiring and exacting, a much more responsible, perilous, lonely venture. That men are, in fact, alone in N. In N. For that is the name, to me, of this sunlit archipelago in the midst of the great seas. We can cast our own shadows out on the other lands if we like. It's a good and lawful form of invention, but an invention it is, and proceeds out of Earth, the talkative planet. The only now ever to dwell in red Gormok, or in bright cloud-bright Zingil, will be put there by us. So Gormok and Zingil are, I believe, he tells us, the real names of Mars and Venus. I, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, and of course, the um, um, the talkative planet, of course, is a is a direct response to uh, uh, Lewis's characterization of Earth as the silent planet, silent only from a uh, a, a solar system perspective, uh, right? Because there's a kind of quarantine on it, and so nothing comes out of it. No messages come out of it. That you know the the Eldila of uh, of uh, of of the great heavens don't uh, don't hang with the Eldila of Earth, and so it's the silent planet. But um, but of course he says, you know, no, actually Earth is the talkative planet, right? Um, because we are the ones with people, and he says, yeah, no, there are no now on any other planet in our solar system. We are in fact alone in N. But, um, uh, yeah, and Brian, it does feel like a, a gentle jab at Lewis for writing a whole space trilogy based on intelligent life on Mars and Venus. Yes, I agree. 
Um, it's certainly a gentle jab at Lewis. I mean, the talk of the planet thing is a very clear jab at Lewis. But I don't think he's, like, mocking him, right? I mean, in fact, you'll notice, Brian, what he does is actually um, justify it, <laughs> in a sense, right? We can cast our own shadows out on the other islands if we like. It's a good and lawful form of invention, but invention it is, right? It's totally fine for us to make up stories about people living on Perelandra or living on Malacandra, right? People living on Mars and Venus. That's fine. It's okay to tell stories, but that's not real, right? That's not real. Um, uh, Raymer, of course, has been there and has traveled there and is telling us what's really there. Um, yes, yes, Brianna, Gormak, uh, not uh, Darmok or Jalad at Tanagra. Yeah, no, uh, totally different. Um, yeah, good. Now, but notice the bulk of that first paragraph, right? As this contains something that I think is another one of those things which I can't help but feel gives us a little bit of an insight into Tolkien's mind. And again... I cannot help but think of all of those landscape descriptions in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, At first, he sounds like he's making merely negative statements, right? That is, he's offering proof. um, He's offering proof that there is no organic life. There, There are no now on the other planets in our solar system. Right, And so he starts describing what he's seen instead. Mars is a horrible network of deserts and chasms. And then he starts describing Venus and gets all carried away. Venus, a boiling whirl of wind and steam above a storm-wracked twilight, smoking black sea, rising like Everest, raging in the dusk over dim, drowned mountains, and sucking back with a roar of cataracts like the end of Atlantis. That's what Venus is like, right? Um, it's magnificent. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Stephen, I agree with you. Stephen is, uh, is currently listening to Lewis's essays, he says, where he talks quite a bit about aliens, and it doesn't sound like Lewis actually believed strongly that there was intelligent life elsewhere, so this would be a jab at Lewis's writings, not his beliefs. Yes, I agree. Um, Lewis did say on on a number of occasions, you know, did write, I should say, on a number of occasions that, you know, uh, he he was not, like, opposed to the idea. Like, he did not think it impossible that there were rational uh, beings on other planets. Um, he spoke as if he would not be surprised to discover that that was true. Uh, but he did not, he at the same time uh, did, was not like convinced that it necessarily was true either. Uh, and probably, I think if you pinned him down, I agree with you, Stephen, he would probably say, yeah, no, probably not. But still. Um, anyway, yeah, Carita says this is description of Venus is spoken like someone who has a crush on Venus. Yeah, yeah, like on the planet Venus, right? Um, remember that previous description that we got from Raymer. Remember the story of that world where there was no organic life at all, right? And he just gave the description of like all those crystals and everything else, right? Um, uh, Raymer's experience has often been of stories about things that are way more interesting and way more important than people, right? 
all of the plots that involve people and stuff that people do, he characterizes briefly as this tangle of Ant Hill history, right? To look down at humans doing stuff, right? And here again, he's saying, I'm not a misanthrope, right? It's not that I don't think people are okay, right? It's not that I dislike people. I don't hate people. It's not that I'm totally uninterested in human histories and stories featuring people, right? But what he is saying is that it's even more inspiring and exacting. It's a much more responsible, perilous, lonely venture to look beyond that, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, he is, um, um, he's saying the stories of, like, we, my sense of what Raymer is saying here and elsewhere is that we as storytellers often fixate on people, right? We tell stories about people. Uh, our characters are usually people uh, in one sense or other, in one form or another, right? Um and he's like, actually, the great stories are the stories that are not about people, right? Uh, the stories compared with whom uh, the stories of people are merely the tangle of Ant Hill history, like a bunch of ants sort of scurrying around, uh, doing who knows what for who knows what reason, right? Um, the big story is the story that's kind of going on around them. That's the kind of thing that really sort of hits home to Raymer. Um yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Darlene Neal says, "If only Venus were actually that cool." Yeah, I know, I know. E- even in the act of saying that, it's not—it's uh, altogether barren and trying to describe its barrenness, right? Yeah, it makes it sound pretty cool. Um, okay, let's keep going. It's connected with the fluted wave, he said. That is, that green wave dream that Tolkien himself personally actually had, and with another symbol. The, uh, the great door, shaped like a Greek pie with sloping sides. And I've seen the Enkeladim, my Enkeladim, playing one of their Caladian plays, the drama of the silver tree, sitting round in a circle and singing in that strange, long, long, but never-wearying, uncloying music, endlessly unfolding out of itself while the song takes visible life among them. The green sea flowers in foam, and the isle rises and opens like a rose in the midst of it. There the tree opens, the starred turf like a silver spear, and grows, and there is a new light, and the leaves unfold, and there is full light, and the leaves fall, and there is a rain of light. Then the door opens, but no, I have no words for that fear. He stopped suddenly. That's the only things I've ever seen, he said, that I'm not sure whether I've inve- whether it's invented or not. I expect it's a composition, out of desire, fancy, waking experience, and reading, asleep and awake. But there is another ingredient. Somewhere, in some place of places, something like it really happens, and I have seen it, perhaps far off or faintly. My Enkeladim I see in humane forms of surpassing and marvelously varied beauty, 
but I guess that their true types, if such there be, are invisible, unless they embody themselves by their own will, entering into their own works because of their love for them. That is, they are elvish, but very different from men's garbled tales of them, for they are not lofty indeed, yet they are not fallen. Whew. Okay, so much here, right? Um, even if for the moment here we disregard the drama of the silver tree, right? What actually happens with the tree and what he describes. Focus here on the Enkeladim, on these elvish creatures, right? Um, so he says, I've seen the Enkeladim, my Enkeladim, playing one of their Caladian plays. Okay. Now, so when he first says the Enkeladim, playing one of their Caladian plays, it sounds like he's talking about elves, or something like elves, something parallel to his elves, right? Um, Caladian plays would be like fairy and drama, right, from on fairy stories. So, okay, we're talking about elves. So elves are coming into this now. Raymer has seen elves somewhere. He's seen a He's traveled in his dreams to a place seen, communicated with the Enkeladim, the elves. Okay, and he describes the one of their plays, the drama of this over tree. Um, then he explains the Enkeladim there at the end. My Enkeladim I see in humane forms of surpassing and marvelously varied beauty. So humane forms meaning forms that are like human forms, but surpassing and marvelously varied beauty forms. <laughs> okay. Um, but he guesses, so that still sounds like the elves. Their true types of such there be are invisible unless they embody themselves by their own will, which starts to sound like the Valar, entering into their own works because of their love for them. That absolutely sounds like the Valar. That is, they are elvish. Wait, what? They are? Hang on, I thought they were. <laughs> I thought that was the Valar we were talking about now. But very different from men's garbled tales of them, for they are not lofty indeed, yet they are not fallen. Oof, okay. Well, here's one quick thing to point out. And this is a thing that... And I should probably be embarrassed by this, but I never thought of this in my life before. The parallel, which, once you see it, seems really obvious, between what the Valar do in descending into Arda, um, in the Ainuindale and the Valaquenta, and what elves do in fairy and drama. Right? So fairy and drama is a, a piece of sub-creation. Right? Uh, it's a piece of fiction, right? It's a secondary world that the elves create, but through their art, they are able to make that secondary world true to your senses and your imagination, right? So that you physically enter, and they can physically enter into it as well. So they give a kind of being to their own sub-creation and, and can enter into it because of their love for their works, right? Um, and I had never in my life uh, thought of that parallel between what elves can do 
in through fairy and drama, through enchantment, and what the Valar did. Now it's not exactly the same, obviously, right? Um, you know, the and, and fairy and drama is still a secondary world, even if it's a secondary world that you, if you were experiencing it, would mistake for the primary world. Whereas with the Valar, we're talking about the primary world itself, right? Um, uh, but that parallel is really interesting, and I never thought of that before. Um, and so that, because here he does seem to be, I mean, I cannot help in that last paragraph thinking of both of those. He is enforcing my mind anyway uh, to consider those two things in parallel. That is the Valar, uh, these spiritual beings, those uh, who in their true types are invisible, right? Unless they choose to embody themselves by their own will, right? That's the Valar, right? Entering into their own works because of their love for them. Um, But he says they are elvish, right? That's what elves are like, or at least what the Enkeladim are like. Um, so, Brian, when he says, my Enkeladim, at the beginning, I've seen the Enkeladim, my Enkeladim, playing one of their Kaladian plays. Um, I don't think by my Enkeladim he is saying he's not sure how real they are. He is saying, Brian, of course, that he's not sure how real that drama is. When he's watching slash participating in the drama of the silver tree that he describes. Um, he says, that's one of the only things I've ever seen that I'm not sure whether it's invented or not. And he expects it probably is invented. It's probably a composition. Um, but it's not pure. Con- it's not, he didn't just make it up. There's another ingredient somewhere. Something like it really happens. And I've seen it perhaps far off or faintly. So he's responding to an actual picture of it, but he's not, um, uh, but yet, but yet it's also kind of, uh, kind of made up. But I don't think, Brian, that his uncertainty about whether it's invented or not extends to the Enkeladim themselves. Um, but I don't know, Brian, maybe I'm not being fair about that. As it is a little peculiar how he keeps saying my, because he does do it twice. My Enkeladim, I see in humane forms. I think the way that I was understanding that myself at first, Brian, was more in the sense of when he says my Enkeladim, he means my perception of them. And here I think what, what, I, what I was first thinking he was referring to was his translation, right? So he perceives them in a direct sense, uh, as we saw before, but of course, his incarnate mind has to translate what he sees, right? So that here, what he is describing is his translation of the Enkeladim. They themselves are invisible. Um, they are not incarnate, I think. Um, what he's telling us, so I think when he says my Enkeladim, he is saying this is how my mind translates the Enkeladim that I have encountered. Because remember, he did say, no, I've totally had the experience of meeting other creatures. Right. Good creatures, apparently. Um, so I think he's saying he's actually encountered them. Um, but it is possible, Brian, I can't rule out the idea that he is 
questioning whether or not any of this that he's describing here actually is legit. Um, could it be that he is saying Mayan Keladim because he is expressing some doubt as to whether or not they're invented? But again, I think I would still incline towards my first reading that uh, he is describing instead his own the picture into which his corporeal, you know, mind has translated, his incarnate mind has translated uh, his experience with the, uh, with the Enkeladim. So that when he says my Enkeladim and tells him what, tells them what my Enkeladim is like, he's, what he's making clear is not these creatures that I made up, but rather he's saying what my mind perceived in them, right? The, the the images and concepts into which my uh, incarnate mind has translated these experiences that I have look like this. But I'm not saying that this is objective. I'm not saying that this is really what the Enkeladim are like, right? Um, this is just how I experienced it, how I understood it. I think I still incline towards that reading. But Brian, I, the, again, the more I think about it, the more I say I don't think I can rule out that he has perhaps some doubt or some question about the whole thing there. Okay. Now we're getting towards the end of Raymer's discussion, this uh, this really unpleasant experience that he had. I found a horrible, disorderly, shifting scene, a shocking contrast to Tekel Miram, and after Emberu and Elor, intolerable. So he's been to Elor, remember, that was the landscape that he described at great length before with all the different colors and everything. Um, so this, this new scene that he's seeing is a shocking contrast to these beautiful places he's seen elsewhere. Dark and light flickered to and fro over it. Winds were whirling and eddying, and vapors were rising, gathering, flashing by, and vanishing too quick for anything to be discerned but a general ragged swirl. The land, if that's what it was, was shifting too, like sands in a tide, crumbling and expanding as the sea galloped in and out among the unsteady edges of the coast. There were wild growths, woods, you could hardly say, trees springing up like mushrooms and crashing in dying before you could determine their shapes. Everything was in an abominable flux. What he says he is... um, What he says he is experiencing here, right, is time, right? So he is seeing a world, but he is seeing a world, like, in fast forward, right? Um, He's seeing this in this alternate time frame where he's seeing lots of time passing quickly. So that's what he's describing. The, 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 the coast and this, and the land, um, uh, crumbling and expanding the trees, barely sprouting up into their full shape before they then fall down and die, right? Everything is in abominable flux. So he hasn't had this experience before, but remember, a lot of the things that he described before, especially the things that he really liked, were things that were not unchangeable, but changed very slowly, right? Organic and inorganic things and colored, you know, colors, and um, and even the Enkeladim themselves seem to be fairly mm, stable, Right. Um, but um, but anyway, so here's this the, the thing that he dislikes so far about this scene that he's seeing on this world. He's not sure what it is, um, is that everything is in this abominable flux, like time affects everything so much. Everything is growing and crumbling chaotically. I came still closer. 
The effort to attend carefully seemed to steady things. The flicker of light and dark became much slower, and I saw something that was definitely a small river, though it waggled a little and broadened and narrowed as I looked at it. The trees and woods in its valley held their shapes now for some time. Then, now at last, I said to myself, for in the vale, down by the river among the trees, I saw shapes, unmistakable shapes of houses. At first I thought that they were some kind of quick-growing fungus, until I looked more steadily. But now I saw that they were buildings, but still fungus buildings, appearing and then falling to pieces, and yet their agglomeration was spreading. I was still rather high above it all, higher than a man in a very tall tower, but I could see that the place was crawling, or rather boiling, with now of some sort. They were not very large ant creatures, endowed with amazing speed, darting about, alone or in bunches, bewilderingly, always more and more of them. Often they went shooting in or out like bullets along the tracks that led to horrible, to the horrible, crumbling, outgrowing sore of house shapes. Okay, so this doesn't sound too good, right? Uh, so remember he has said that he has rarely encountered now. That's not been primarily what his travels in space and time have shown him, right? And so he's giving this example of this time that he encountered now, right? So he zooms in in that second paragraph, in a sense, right, and slows down the passage of time. So it's still passing quickly, but not quite so bewilderingly quickly, right? And then he sees this town, city growing, right, as these with these fungus houses, right, and these tiny little, um, uh, these tiny little uh, uh, ant-like creatures uh, uh, zipping around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that last sentence is too much. Often they went shooting in or out like bullets along the tracks that led to the horrible, crumbling, outgrowing sore of house shapes. Tell us how you really feel about the architecture, Tolkien. <laughs> I must have a really close look, I thought. For if there are now here, it is important, however nasty they may be, and I must take some notes. Just a look, and then I must be off. Now what is that thing like a great fluted mushroom with an odd top? It hasn't been here as long as some of the other large things. With that I came right down. Of course, if one really concentrates on things, especially to observe their static forms, not their changes, as I'd been doing in, in Tekelmirim, then they tend to halt, as it were. The speed is in you when you're not tied to a time clock of a body. So as I bent my attention, I lost all the acceleration that the excitement of Tekelmirim had induced. Things stood still for a moment, rock hard. I was gazing at the camera. I was about thirty feet above the ground in Radcliffe Square. I suppose I had at first been seeing the Thames Valley at a huge speed, and then, slower and slower, Oxford, since I don't know when, since the beginning of the university, probably. Um, a wonderful reveal at the end, right? What was he seeing? He was seeing the history of Earth, right? He was seeing England. He was seeing Oxford in particular. The fungus growths uh, were his own town, right? Um, He'd been looking at the Thames Valley. 
So all of those unpleasant things, right? The now, um, the horrible crumbling out, growing sore of house shapes, right? These um, now, which looked really nasty uh, to judge by their buildings and everything, turn out to be us. Uh, Nancy, I agree. There is something very Gulliver's Travels about this moment. Yes, I agree. This is uh, not Swiftian in style, right? But uh, in in conceit, I do think a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. And this is the end of Raymer's vision, right? Um, we've finally got to the end of Raymer's vision. And I love how in, like, the subsequent nights of the Notion Club, they kind of drop this. Like, everyone is hearing Raymer talking about, like, how he invented space and time travel and has seen all these foreign planets through his dreams. Uh, And then they're like, huh, huh, okay. And then next week they're like, okay, somebody is going to read a paper on, like, uh, you know, the, what was it? The the ancient, um, it wasn't the goth society. Uh, Jutland Society, that was it, yeah. Uh, like the the Society of the Ancient Jutes. Uh, okay, right, next paper, right, next topic. All right. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to transition now from Raymer's vision and Raymer's mechanism to what's going on with Laudum, which is connected, but not exactly the same, right? Okay, so first we get this incident. It was a cool, clear night after a windy day. It was starry in the west, but the moon was already climbing. At BNC Gate, Loudham turned. The camera looked vast and dark against the moonlit sky. Wisps of long white cloud were passing on an easterly breeze. For a moment, one of them seemed to take the shape of a plume of smoke issuing from the lantern of the dome. Loudham looked up, and his face altered. His tall, powerful figure appeared taller and broader as he stood there, gazing with his dark brows drawn down. His face seemed pale and angry, and his eyes glittered. "'Curse him! May the darkness take him!' he said bitterly. "'May the earth open!' The cloud passed away. He drew his hand over his brow. "'I was going to say,' he said. "'Well, I don't remember. Something about the camera, I think. Doesn't matter. Good night, chaps.' He knocked and passed in through the door." Okay, for those of you who don't know, by the way, the camera is this large domed building. It's a, it's a, a major feature of the Oxford skyline. Um, uh, so it's taller than most of the buildings around, and it's got a big old dome. That's the important thing about the camera. Okay. Um, so here's Loudham having this odd turn as they're walking home. Right. Um, he's looking at the camera and he seems to be remembering something else. Right. And doesn't seem to remember what he just said. Um, now, we have an advantage. We, unlike anyone else in the story, or indeed uh, probably almost anybody else in the Inklings at the time, can totally already place what Loudham is thinking of. Right. Who's him? What is the vision that he's seeing? Why does the camera, with uh, a wisp of cloud that takes the shape of a plume of smoke issuing from the lantern of the dome, why does that lead him to have this moment where he says, curse him, may the darkness take him, and is inviting the earth to open up? 
Who's he talking about? Why does that scene connect him with that? And who is he? Loudham. They're always the person speaking there. We can know this. Yes, the him is Sauron. Yes. Exactly. Exactly, Kimber. Uh, the him is Sauron. The him who is being cursed is Sauron. And the camera with its dome and the smoke appearing to emerge from the lantern of the dome is the temple where he sacrifices people in Numenor. Yes. Yes. And thus, Laudum is whom? What position is he in? Whose role is he playing? I say based on the, like just using the names from the Akalabaith, the more the version of the Numenorean story that we're more familiar with. What position is he in? Yeah, either Elendil or Amandil. Yes, James. Uh, exactly. I think probably Elendil given what he's going to tell us about his dad soon, but we can't quite know that yet. But anyway, yes, one of the leaders of the faithful there in Numenor. Um, Now, again, this is just a totally unexplained scene in context, right? We know more about this because we are familiar with the story that is ultimately going to be articulated after he's worked all this stuff out. So we have a massive advantage in understanding this and figuring it all out. Um, But it's enough to kind of Help us, give us, it, 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 it's kind of nice to have a cheat sheet, not going to lie, when we're, <laughs> when we're reading uh, the Notion Club papers. So I, I'm going to kind of avail myself of it there in that way. Um, okay. But, so, but notice the difference here. There's several important differences. Um, differences, I say, between what Loudham is doing and what we've seen from Raymer, right? Raymer, it was all about the dreaming mind. He was traveling through his dreaming mind. Loudham is just having this experience. He's like, it's like he's remembering himself. Um, he's not dreaming. He's awake. So the experience that Loudham seems to have is that some kind of memory seems to be thrusting itself forward semi-consciously into his waking life here, right? So what we're seeing with Loudham as a, you know, psychological phenomenon seems to be quite different uh, from what Raymer was describing that seems worth observing. Okay. Um, some other things from their subsequent... I'm, I'm skipping a bit of their conversation, some other comments and things about language which we and names and things which we could easily have talked about, but I decided... I wanted to finish before November, so uh, we're going to skip some of it and try to stick to the stuff that is more directly relevant to the thread of the story. Um, So they're talking about stories here and about myths in history. Yes, frankly, said Jeremy, you've got to make a distinction between lies or casual fiction or the mere verbal trick of projecting sentences back by putting the verbs into the past tense, between all that and construction, especially of the major kind that has acquired a secondary life of its own and passes from mind to mind. Okay, so they're talking about history and and telling stories of what was, right? Um, So you've got somebody making stuff up on the one, it just lies, right? You've got the mere verbal trick of putting verbs in the past tense, right? I mean, just by saying something in the past tense, you've 
made a narrative, right, of something that happened in the past. He says that there's a difference between that kind of thing, right, just making up any old thing, and construction, like the actual construction of a story. That is to say, what he's, what I think Jeremy is saying, though he's not using the f- vocabulary that we are familiar with from on fairy stories, Jeremy is talking about the difference between asserting, just like making a narrative about the past and subcreating, right? A subcreation, especially of the major kind that has acquired a secondary life of its own and passes from mind to mind, right? So there's just somebody making a statement about the past or somebody making up a lie about the past, right? That's on one end of the spectrum. Much further on the other side of the spectrum is a real sub-creation, a construction, as Jeremy says, um, which you can enter into imaginatively, presumably, I think is what he means there. But then on the very far end of the spectrum is the, a major kind of construction, a major kind of sub-creation that has acquired a secondary life of its own and passes from mind to mind, right? When you've got a story that really takes on a life of its own. Something like, uh, to use an example, that they... Um, uh, a... Um, uh, a thing that, uh, to cite an example that they're going to refer to many times, the Arthurian story would be a major construction that has acquired a secondary life of its own and passes from mind to mind, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, but of course, we can't, or sh- we shouldn't, I think, hear the phrase passes from mind to mind without remembering Raymer. Right. And that idea of direct mind to mind communication. Right. That there is something. The implication is that there is something in these kinds of stories, these major stories, these major constructions, these significant sub creations, the ones that have a secondary life of their own. There's something in them that is like that communication from mind to mind. Right. Different minds are perceiving the same story. Right. Maybe understanding it, translating them differently. Just as the direct mind-to-mind translation gets incarnated in your own, um, through your own senses, through your own incarnate mind, right? So, you know, two different visions of the Arthurian world will be translated differently, right, by the author. But both minds are sort of perceiving the same thing, right? Quite so, said Raymer. I don't think you realize, I don't think any of us realize, the force, the daimonic force that the great myths and legends have. From the profundity of the emotions and perceptions that begot them, and from the multiplication of them in many minds, and each mind, mark you, an engine of obscured yet unmeasured energy, they are like an explosive. It may slowly yield a steady warmth to living minds, but if suddenly detonated, it might go off with a crash. Yes, might produce a disturbance in the real primary world. Okay. I don't think we realize the force, the daimonic force, that the great myths and legends have. So, Raymer puts a word to those major kind of constructions, right? And his word is myth, right? Myths and legends. Myths and legends, those stories that are on that extreme end of this narrative spectrum... Um, they have a force, a powerful force, a 
daemonic force. Now, um, when he says daemonic and spells it with two eyes, like that D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C, um, uh, do not make the mistake of confusing this with demonic with an E, right? Demonic uh, means of or referring to demons, right? Devils. Uh, by the way, footnote, demoniac with an A, right? D-E-M-O-N-I-A-C is an adjective describing a person who is possessed by a demon. So a, a person possessed by a demon is a demoniac. Um, uh, or it, it can be used as a noun or an adjective. Um, you can also do something with demoniac force, like as if you were possessed by a demon. Um, uh, so demonic and demoniac, both of them refer to demons. Demonic is something different substantially different. Um, the difference here, this is a direct reference to Plato. Um, so Plato, uh, okay, here's a super, and my apologies to like Plato and Socrates for this really crude synopsis I'm about to give. Uh, but, uh, you know, you probably know, you know, Plato has this idea of like the physical world, that we are currently in. And there's, then there's this, you know, the, the spiritual world, the world of forms and ideas that is like far above the physical world and the physical world, like the, the physical body, physical stuff, right. Uh, uh, is like where, uh, you know, suffering and badness comes from and all of the, the pure and good things are in the spiritual world. Um, the thing is the two things are separate, right? They have nothing in common, the spiritual world and the physical world. Um, uh, there needs to be some connection. There needs to be some interface between them. So uh, the, 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 um, uh, the daimons um, are these beings who can like go back and forth, who are the sort of the, the, the tertium quid. They're the, the third, um, Factor which can form a link between the uh, the spirit and the physical. What I think, therefore, that Raymer means when he describes the demonic force that the great myths and legends have, he is talking about how the the the, the particular kind of force that they have is connecting us with something. Right? Myths are powerful because through like the the story, which is a myth. Right. There's us over here and there's this higher stuff, these higher truths that we don't have direct access to. And the myths form the link between them and us. They have not just power, they have a demonic power, um, the, a, a power which links us uh, to this uh, to this higher thing. Um, Nancy, Nancy Fosberg says, suddenly Philip Pullman makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's, there's, there's definitely that going on, uh, in Pullman as well. Um, okay. So yes. And if you think about this, I mean, if you, if you've read Lewis and Tolkien talking about myths in other contexts, you will recognize this same kind of idea that, you know, 
myths give us a glimpse. They put us in contact with some higher understanding of things. Like we, there are ways in which we are, we are tapped into something. Um, and there is a power in that because of the, because of the connection that it establishes, um, between us and the, these like truths, capital T truths, um, that gives a power in myth that has nothing to do, as Lewis would say, nothing to do with the merely artistic element. Like it doesn't, a beautifully told story, like a story whose art, whose artistry is, is, is wonderful, is powerful in a certain way. A myth is powerful in a different way. It doesn't matter how artistically it's told. It could be told really, really crudely, but it would still have power, uh, no matter how it's told. That's Lewis's definition of myth from, uh, uh, what is it from uh, an experiment in criticism? I think, um, but anyway, okay. Um, from the profundity, so the force. Where does the force come from? From the profundity of the emotions and perceptions that begot them, and from the multiplication of them in many minds. Each mind, mark you, an engine of obscured but unmeasured energy. Right, so. As these stories, these myths, acquire a secondary life and pass from mind to mind, there's this amplification of this power, right? They're like an explosive, which can be a good thing, but can be a destructive thing. Then he says, might produce a dis- if it goes off with a crash, it might produce a disturbance in the real primary world. Hmm. What does he mean by that? If a myth... In what sense can a myth blow up? What does an exploding myth look like? How can it produce a disturbance in the real primary world? Um, you know, what, what does the impact crater of a myth in the primary world look like exactly? What is he talking about? What he's talking about, I believe, is what's happening with Laudum. Laudum is a myth exploding <laughs> And producing a disturbance in the real primary world. Uh, uh, Laudum is like the disturbance in the primary world. Let's see more of that. And anyway, if legend, significant on its own plane, has gathered about history with its own importance, which would you go back to? So this is Guildford asking questions to Raymer about like, hey, hey, could you go back to the past? Could you go back and, you know, like see what Camelot was really like, right? Um, And he's asking, which one would you see? Legend? Would you see the legend? Would you see history? What would you see if you saw back? It depends on what you yourself are like and what you're looking for, I imagine, Raymer answered. If you were seeking the story that has most power and significance for human minds, then probably that is the version that you'd find. So if you're seeking the myth, like what is it about the Arthurian story, right? The Arthurian myth that is so powerful and so significant to the human mind. If that's what you're seeking, you'll probably find, you'll pro- what you would probably find if you went back to look through Raymer's method is the myth. You would see the myth. Anyway, I think you could. I think I could go back to Camelot if the conditions of my mind and the chances of travel were favorable. The chances are not, as I told you, more than very slightly affected by waking desire. An adventure of that sort would not be the same thing as reviewing what you'd call 5th century Britain. 
neither would it be like making a dream drama of my own. It would be more like the first, but it would be more active. It would be less free than the second. It would probably be more difficult than either. I fancy it might be the sort of thing best done by one or two people in concert. Okay, so, um... It would be like reviewing what you'd call 5th century Britain. So it would be like seeing what really happened. But it wouldn't be exactly like that. And it would be a little bit like making a dream drama of your own, like making up a story about 5th century Britain. But it wouldn't be quite like that either. It would be more like seeing what really happened, but it would be more active than that. It would be less free than making up the story. So you'd be able to interact with it. You'd be able to shape it in some way. If it's not wholly unlike making a dream drama of your own, right? It's less free, but you would be taking part in it, I think. Is that, if, if I'm understanding what he means there? Riding down to Camelot, riding out from Camelot, murmured Loudham. And there was a dark shadow over that too, I wonder. I wonder. But it is still only a tale to me. Not all legends are like that. No, unfortunately. Some seem to have come to life on their own, and they will not rest. I should hate to be cast back into some of those lands. It would be worse than the vision of poor Norman Keeps. What on earth is he talking about now? said Guildford. A cork is coming out pretty soon, I think, grunted Dolbear without opening his eyes. Dolbear, by the way, totally my favorite character uh, in the Notion Club papers. Um... Yeah, yeah. Carrie, that's a really good description. Uh, she said, can one enter a sub-creation and find more there than was created? Yes. One can also enter, like, a vision of the primary world and find it to be, in part, like a sub-creation, right? And I think, in the extent that you would be shaping the story, right? I mean, you would be an actor, in the events, not just a witnesser of the events. You wouldn't be free because you're not just making it up, right? There's something objective about it, too. It's not just your own invention. Um, but anyway. So here's Dolbear saying the cork is coming out pretty soon. Um, the, there's mounting pressure behind the cork that's about to pop out of the bottle, which I think is uh, Dolbear's gentle metaphor for the explosion of the, uh, uh, the, the, the force right behind a myth, you know, when myths explode, uh, as Raymer was saying. Um, unfortunately, Loudham says, not all legends are like that. Like what? Still only a tale, right? The Arthurian story is to Loudon, to Loudham rather, uh, still only a tale to me. Right? It's just a story to him. But not everything... Is, so what legend, Loudham, is not only a tale to you, is more than a tale, kind of like Raymer was just describing, right? Uh, not quite a sub-creation, not quite just a, an objective vision. Um, there's a, there is a legend which is in that category for Loudham in some sense. Some seem, some legends, seem to have come to life on their own and they will not rest. Yeah. Um, by the way, I love Norman Keeps. So Norman Keeps is their, is their nickname for their barber. 
I, I love Norman Keeps. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um, I wonder if they call him Norman. Um, but Norman Keeps is a fantastic nickname. Uh, I just love that. Um, the play on the common first name Norman, right? But uh, uh, but of course, you know, as if Keeps were his last name. It's wonderful. And you may remember the, the visions of Norman Keeps are just his muddled idea of what the Dark Ages was like, right? Um, which, uh, which I think it's Raymer describes. Um, yeah, good. The early summer night was still, this is still that same evening. That early, the early summer night was still and glimmering, warmer than usual for the time of year. Loudham leant out, and we turned and stared at his back. The large window looked west, and the two towers of all souls stuck up like dim horns against the stars. Uh, all souls, uh, uh, college, of course. Suddenly Loudham spoke in a changed voice, clear and ominous, words in an unknown tongue. And then, turning fiercely upon us, he cried aloud, Behold the eagles of the lords of the west! They are coming over Numenor! We were all startled. Several of us went to the window and stood behind Loudham, looking out. A great cloud, coming up slowly out of the west, was eating up the stars. As it approached, it opened two vast sable wings, spreading north and south. Okay, great. Um, so, um, first of all, I love the fact that their response to Loudham suddenly speaking in a changed voice clear and ominous words in an unknown tongue. So first he speaks in some language that nobody knows. And remember, there's a bunch of philologists in the room, right? Uh, so, like, somebody in the room would know what language he spoke in, right? But nobody does, right? Um, he speaks in an unknown tongue, and then he turns and yells at them, Behold, the eagles of the lords of the west! And their response to this is to look out the window <laughs> to see if they can see the eagles of the lords of the west, right? Um, kind of reminds me of their reaction to Raymer, right? There isn't anybody who just merely expresses skepticism, right? Who is just like, y'all are crazy and, you know, uh, uh, please don't hurt me. Like, nobody has that reaction either to Loudham uh, or to Raymer. Um, once again, that legend is taking life and breaking through. Again, here's the explosion. Here's a myth exploding, right? The myth of Numenor bursting in on the primary world. Um, and it seems in more than one sense, doesn't it? Uh, in one sense, of course, it's bursting into the primary world in that it is manifesting itself through Loudum, right? Loudum is speaking as if he is taking part in the legend there and now. Um, and then he... Um, but the, of course, it's not just Loudham and Loudham's actions. It's not just Loudham's perspective, right? The cloud is actually there. <clears throat> uh, a great cloud coming slowly up out of the west, eating up the stars, uh, uh, opening two vast sable wings spreading north and south, right? So it, it's like the myth has, in fact, exploded out into the primary world. Now, that's a wonderful question, Jennifer. Jennifer Pope is saying, why is he speaking in English at all, right? Why doesn't he speak in the unknown language the whole time? You know, he was speaking English over by the camera, too, when he was, you know, yelling about curse him and may the darkness take him. Um, why should he be speaking in English? I think there's an answer to that, Jennifer, right, from Raymer's uh, experience, 
right? He's translating. His mind is translating. Just as Raymer said, when he encounters people who speak in a strange language that he doesn't know in his dreams, his dreaming mind knows what they mean. The, their meaning is communicated directly to his mind, and his mind translates it, right? And so when he wakes up, he remembers it as English. Loudon's mind seems to be doing the same thing. Loudon's mind now has had these two flashbacks, these two connections with these old legendary memories. Um, once at the camera and once here at the window. Both times he speaks in English, which is what we should expect based on Raymer's experience, right? So Jennifer, actually, the interesting thing, the weird thing, the thing not explained by Raymer's experience is the fact that he spoke in an unknown tongue at all. Why is he speaking even once in an unknown tongue, right? He shouldn't do that. Remember, Raymer said he never retains the memory of the sounds that they were making, those other people that he heard speaking in his dream. He remembers it as English because his mind has translated it. Um, so, in other words, something different seems to be happening with Loudon. Okay. I asked, said Raymer, because Numenor is my name for Atlantis. Now that is odd, began Jeremy. So Raymer was asking about Numenor. He, you know, he mentioned Numenor, Loudon mentioned Numenor. Um, and Ray, remember Raymer had said before that he has a name for Atlantis and Loudon, with this peculiar intensity, had asked him what his name was and he hadn't answered, right? Um... Yeah. Ah, said Loudham. I wondered if it might be. I asked you what your name was that night last term, but you didn't answer. Well, here's a new development, said Dolbear, who was now wide awake. If Airy Loudham is going to dive where the dreams go and find the same fish as Raymer, we shall have to look into the pool. We shall, said Jeremy, for it's not only Raymer and Airy. I come into it, too. I know I heard. I knew I had heard that name as soon as Airy said it. But I can't for the life of me remember where or when at the moment. It'll bother me now, like a thorn in the foot, until I get it out. Can anybody help out poor, uh, poor Jeremy? Can anybody, uh, can anybody help Jeremy remember when or where he heard the name Numenor? Anybody? We know Jeremy's reading... Jeremy, of course, is the C.S. Lewis expert. Uh, he's the one who keeps quoting. Uh, he's read all those old irrelevant books like Lewis and, and the other minor figures in Lewis's set, like, uh, you know, the author of On Fairy Stories. Exactly. It's in that hideous strength. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeremy read it in Lewis, right? And I think it's a joke. Uh, and that, uh, you know, he can't remember where it was that he read it, but he clearly read it in Lewis, right? Um, of course, he uh, recognizes the name Numenor. So we now have the explicit... So now we know what legend is it that has blown up. What legend has exploded and burst into the primary world here? It is the legend of Atlantis. It is the myth of Atlantis. But the name of Atlantis according to two people, potentially corroborated by a third, uh, Jeremy, which is to say corroborated by Lewis, is, is Numenor. Numenor is the real name for Atlantis. So it's the Atlantis story 
that is bursting into Latum. And of course, we should be remembering the references to the fluted wave, right? The great green wave that is uh, uh, overwhelming the land. Um, that becomes relevant here. Okay. Laudum then tells his story. His real name is Alwyn Arundel Laudum, and he's telling the story of his father, Edwin Laudum, who disappeared. Disappeared, said Frankly. I thought you told me once that he was lost at sea. He disappeared, said Laudum. A strange story. No storm. His ship just vanished into the Atlantic. That was in 1947, just 40 years ago next month. No signals. He wouldn't use wireless anyway. No trace. No news. She was called the Arendel, an odd business. The seas were still pretty dangerous at that time, weren't they? said Stainer. Mines all over the place? Not a spar at any rate was ever found, said Loudham. That was the end of the Arendel. The Arendel. A queer name, and a queer end. But my father had some queer fancies about names. I am called Alwyn Arundel, a mouthful enough, out of deference to Prudence and my mother, I believe. The names he chose were Alfwina Arendel. Okay, so his real name, like what his father meant to name him, was Alfwina Arendel. Okay. Uh, now, we should all know, we should all be familiar with all of the, with both of these names, right, from our experience in the history of Middle-earth together. Alfwina, of course, is the name of the... Tarlonio says, I can see why Mom might have objected. Yeah, yeah. And Tarlonio, can I say I stared at that sentence for a while because at first I thought that his mother's name was Prudence. Like, I, I, I kept reading that sentence. Every time I read that sentence, it came out, out of deference to Prudence, my mother. Right? And I'm like, well, if the mother was named Prudence, that's quite a family. Um, but anyway... Uh, yeah, so I, I too, I, I don't think I could have gotten Alfwina Arendel past my wife either, uh, for, uh, for one of my sons. But, um, we know the significance of these names, right? Arendel, of course. Um, and notice the spelling, Arendel, with an E, right? Um, as Arendel still was, um, uh, you know, through most of those early years of the, uh, Silmarillion mythology, Alfwina of course, is the name of the guy who is the narrator of the Book of Lost Tales, the second narrator, right? Ariel is the very first one, um, and then he decides to change it, to change the story of the dude who collects the stories of the elves and brings them back in Alfwina, uh, because he decides to situate the narrator's story more firmly in the Anglo-Saxon period and connect him to, Hen uh, to Hengist and Horsa, right? So he... Uh, uh, he names he renames him Alfwina and changes his story, and that's kind of where the Book of Lost Tales gets derailed, uh, as you may recall. Also, where else does it get derailed? Right around the story of Arendel, which he sets out to write in seven parts and never actually writes ever. Um, so his father sailed a ship called the Arendel, and the Arendel just vanished. Right now, again, notice how it's almost like we have it. We have, as I said, like a cheat sheet all the way through here, right? Um, what happened? What happened to the Ar the Arendel? Do you think? Where's his dad? Where's Alfwina Arendel's dad? Absolutely, James. It seems almost certain that his ship, exactly, Mary, found the straight road, right? found the lost road, 
right? Um, that would explain why it vanished with no wreckage, no trace, no story, no signal, no news, right? Um, it's like it just went somewhere else that couldn't be detected. Yes, almost like that. Um, so he's got a father who vanished in a ship called the Aarendel with three other sailors on board, right? So he's like recapitulating the story of Aarendel quite directly. Um, now about that name Aarendel. Um, Loudum is teasing Philip, whose name is Philip, of course, and it's him he's referring to. Perhaps, oh, horse friend of Macedon, horse friend being what Philip means, but it doesn't take in Aarendel. There's little to be found out about in Anglo-Saxon, though the name is there all right. Some guess that it was really a star name for Orion, or for Rigel, Rigel being the brightest star, the blue star, the blue giant uh, in Orion. A ray, a brilliance, the light of dawn, so run the glosses. Eala earendel engla beochtast, over midden yeard monum sended. That, of course, being the lines uh, from the Christ, which Tolkien read, which, of course, this is the famous story, got quoted in the film, right, in the, in the, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the biopic. Um, the lines which are pretty much the inspiration of all of, you know, Middle-earth, of the whole Silmarillion legends, right? Him reading the name Eärendil in that line of Anglo-Saxon poetry um, and not understanding it, right? And it's stimulating his imagination. And listen to how Loudham talks about that line. He chanted, Hail Eärendil, brightest of angels, above the Middle-earth sent unto men. When I came across that citation in the dictionary... I felt a curious thrill, as if something had stirred in me, half-wakened from sleep. There is something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. I now, I know more now, of course. The quotation comes from the Christ, though exactly what the author meant is not so certain. It is beautiful enough in its place, but I don't think it is any irreverence to say that it may derive its curiously moving quality from some older word. Old, older world, rather. Um, what Loudham describes, the effect that that name had on him, once again, we seem to be coming right back up to towards autobiography again. Right? Um, that he seems to be describing exactly the experience that he himself had when he encountered the word. That curious thrill, he's described that in exactly this context about this word in this line in other contexts, in other interviews. Um, feeling as if something stirred in him, half-wakened from sleep, remote, strange, and beautiful behind the words that he couldn't grasp, Right? That was far beyond ancient English. His interest in the name Aarendel, the word Aarendel, and what connection does it have reaching back to an ancient, to an older world beyond Anglo-Saxon, right? Um, this is exactly what seems what is what stimulated Tolkien and what ultimately led to the Silmarillion and everything else that came from it. Um, and this is what Loudham describes motivated him as well. And what happened? He says, from the time of my father's departure, I began to have curious experiences, and I have gone on having them down the years, 
slowly increasing in clearness. Visitations of linguistic ghosts, you might say. Yes, just that. I am not a seer. I have, of course, pictorial dreams like other folk, but only what Raymer would call marginal stuff, and few and fleeting at that, which at any rate means that if I see things, I don't remember them. But ever since I was about ten, I have had words, even occasional phrases, ringing in my ears, both in dream and waking abstraction. They come into my mind unbidden, or I wake to hear myself repeating them. Sometimes they seem to be quite isolated, just words or names. Sometimes something seems to break my dream, as my mother used to say. The names seem to be connected strangely with things seen in waking life, suddenly, in some fleeting posture or passing light, which transports me to some quite different region of thought or imagination. Like the camera that night in March, Raymer, if you remember it. Okay, so he's connecting that experience that he had, that first sort of odd turn that he had by the camera. Um, He's connecting that with this experience of these words breaking through to him. Um, Yes, Nancy, exactly. Christopher Tolkien gives us the footnote that Christopher, Christopher Tolkien's mother was really the one who said this, right? Exactly. It was Edith who used to say, break my dream. Yes, exactly. Again, like I said, Nancy, like you just can't, like the autobiography, you just can't, like it, 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 um, it keeps obtruding itself here. And those of you who did the Lost Road with me now a couple years back may recognize this, right? Loudham's experience. So, in one sense, the Notion Club Papers is a second attempt at the same thing that he was doing in uh, in The Lost Road, right? A time travel story and a very different mechanism for a very different machine of time travel. There it seemed to have to do with reincarnation uh, and stuff. But the first thing we had was 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 uh, Albuin, right, who was getting who kept getting these words, right? These these words in these strange languages that he was that he kept putting together right and they kept coming through to him uh, uh, mostly in dreams. Um, again, this dis- this description, Laudam's description of these ghost, uh, these linguistic ghosts uh, visiting him in the night, um, is very like the experience that that uh, that Albuin had. That sense of discovery of these words that have some meaning that he doesn't understand, right? And again, he connects it here explicitly to that night um, that night in March when he saw the camera and had that moment where he's suddenly uh, crying out about curse him, may the darkness uh, uh, take him. Okay, tell us more about these linguistic ghosts. Um, some of the words that came through, he later learns, were Anglo-Saxon words. Take the Anglo-Saxon first, he says. It is the only known language that comes through at all in this way. Um, so, okay, so of all the linguistic ghosts, the o- only the only ones which are in a known language are in Anglo-Saxon. Okay, and that in itself is odd. And it began to come through before I knew it, that is, before he learned Anglo-Saxon. I recognized it as Anglo-Saxon only after I began to learn it, that is, Anglo-Saxon, from books. And then I had the curious experience of finding that I already knew a good many of the words. 
why there are a number of ghost words noted in the very first of my childish notebooks that are plainly a beginner's efforts of putting down spoken Old English words in modern letters. There's walk, walk, woof, crooked, equals crooked, for instance. That is evidently a first attempt at recording Anglo-Saxon walk. So as a child, as a child of like eight years old, he's hearing the word woch, and he has no idea how to speak, he has no idea what language it is, but he's hearing the sound woch, and he knows what it means. He knows it means crooked, but he doesn't know what language it is, and he certainly doesn't know how to spell it, so he spells it in various different ways, trying to, sometimes with a K, sometimes with an F, trying to capture the the woch uh, uh, sound. Right, which it doesn't really exactly translate to to, to English letters. Um, so he was getting so Anglo-Saxon. He was somehow learning was coming through to him from somewhere, somehow, before he had learned Anglo-Saxon. But it's not the only language that was coming through, and here he contrasts it. So he gets a little angry when I think it's Stainer is still talking as if he's these other languages that he's talking about, these other languages that were coming through, uh, through his dreams and through these impressions, were made up languages by him, right? And he says this fascinating paragraph, uh, again, coming from language, the Tolkien, the, Tolkien, the language inventor. Anyone who has ever spent or wasted any time on composing a language will understand me. Others perhaps won't. But in making up a language, you are free, too free. It is difficult to fit meaning to any given sound pattern, and even more difficult to fit a sound pattern to any given meaning. I say fit. I don't mean that you can't assign forms or meanings arbitrarily, as you will. Say you want a word for sky. Well, call it jibber-jabber, or anything else that comes into your head without the exercise of any linguistic taste or art. But that's code-making, not language-building. It is quite another matter to find a relationship, sound plus sense, that satisfies, that is, when made, durable. When you're just inventing, the pleasure or fun is in the moment of invention. But as you are the master, your whim is law. And you may want to have the fun all over again, fresh. You're liable to be forever niggling, altering, refining, wavering, according to your linguistic mood and to your changes of taste. Gosh, yeah, there's an outside chance that if, uh, you know, that you're liable to be forever niggling, altering, refining, wavering, according to you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. You just might. Somebody might have that experience. Um, I love this description, Tolkien's description of what it's like to really make a language, right? To fit a sound pattern to any given meaning, Right? Um, to find a relationship, sound plus sense, that satisfies, that when, that is when made durable, right? That fits, that works. This is the right sound for that sense. Um, this is the right word. So that is what it is like to be an inventor. He's like, but the problem with that is that your whim is law, Right? 
and you can continue having the fun of invention. Uh, you can continue niggling and altering, right? It's not um, what he's describing here. Loudham's experience of these other languages is not the experience of in first inventing and then niggling afterwards. It is of mere discovery. And he describes the languages. So he put the languages into three lists. List A, list, so there's the Anglo-Saxon words, right? And he knows Anglo-Saxon now, so he puts them all on one side, right? So he, he takes those out. Those don't even count now. Um, now, the fact that he was getting Anglo-Saxon in his way is still very important. But as far as trying to understand these languages, remember, Laudam is himself a philologist, right? Um, he made three lists. List A, list B, and list C. List A, the words in lists A and B, he believes, are from two uh, consistent languages. List C is what he calls the ragbag list, right? Anything that's not one of those. It's not Anglo-Saxon, and it's not one of those other two languages, language A or language B. It's something else, right? And it might be many different languages that these those other words are coming from. Both A and B I associate in some way with the name Numenor. The ragbag list has got pretty long as the years have gone on, and I can now see that among some unidentified stuff, it contains a lot of echoes of later forms of language derived from A and B. Okay, so there's a bunch of languages in there, but some of the languages are derived from later versions of A and B. So he's beginning to see the historical connection among some of these languages, but A and B are definitely associated with Numenor. The Numenorean tongues are old, old, archaic. They taste of an elder world to me. The other things are worn, altered, touched with the loss and bitterness of these shores of exile. Okay, these last words he spoke in a strange tone, as if talking to himself. Then his voice trailed off into silence. Worn, altered, touched with the loss of bitterness of these shores of exile. The other things, by the other things, I believe he's referring to the ragbag list, list C, right? So you've got the, the, the A and B are the Numenorean tongues, old, old, archaic, tasting of an elder world. And then the worn, altered words touched with the loss of bitterness of these shores of exile are from C. Um, so what are these languages? What do they sound like? Again, we have a certain cheat sheet here, right? Um, at least we can feel fairly confident what the ragbag list is, right? What the words, where the words in list C come from, Right? from the different languages that are derived from the Numenorean languages after the fall of Numenor. Worn, altered, touched with the loss of bitterness of these shores of exile. The loss and, maybe, bitterness of these shores of exile? Yeah. Brian says, does the concept of Westron exist at this point? Not yet, but it is emerging here. Yes, that's exactly what's happening here, is um, he had long since 
um, been deriving the Elvish languages, right? Now he is uh, giving the first real thought to the Numenorean languages. Um, that's one of the primary things that's, uh, that's happening here. Yeah, the loss and bitterness of these shores of exile. Um, okay, well, I'm going to stop here because we're out of time. Uh, and, uh, and I exactly projected. Look at that. Because that's our last slide. I exactly predicted how far I would get tonight. Nailed it. Not the length of reading, but the slides I'd get through. Anyway, awesome. Um, so we're going to pick up with this again next week as we begin to learn more and more about Loudham. You'll remember that Loudham and Raymer and Jeremy, the historian of fantasy and science fiction literature, have all gotten together and had a long talk about this, right? And they've worked some things out. Um, so we will be learning more about this, and it will be particularly interesting to see how Raymer's experience and Loudham's experience come together here. Thanks, everybody. More Notion Club papers next week. Uh, so thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys uh, soon. So see you guys next week. Everything should be normal next week. And remember, get your copies of The Wizard of Earthsea, because sooner or later we're going to start talking about that, too. Thanks, everybody. Good night now.